Real estate is a major Stark Law and compliance issue because healthcare entities' business is primarily healthcare, but they are also major real estate holding companies in most cities and communities. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today's episode is titled Real Estate Compliance Under the Stark Law. And I've explained before, I was in-house as general counsel and also the compliance officer for a hospital system. And I came to appreciate the complexity in real estate management in a hospital system. Uh, I was a general counsel and compliance officer for a hospital system in South Bend, Indiana. It's a smaller city. Uh, And when you look around in smaller cities and you look at the real estate holdings of hospital systems, you can see that they are major real estate holding companies uh, within those communities. And when I speak nationally about compliance issues and compliance under the Stark Law, I always say that uh, somewhat as a joke that if there was a reality show that involved compliance officers, and of course, you're all saying, oh, that would actually have a lot of viewers, just a joke. Um, And the goal was is to line up compliance officers in the front of the hospital, and the winner was the person who found the compliance issue or concern the quickest. Even if the billing office was the first office you came to and the real estate office was two miles away, I would be sprinting toward the real estate office just because I don't believe a lot of hospital systems or other healthcare entities appreciate the complexity of operating real estate under the rules and regulations that we have to abide by, especially the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute as it relates to the acquisition, sale, and leasing of real estate to referral sources. And under the Stark Law, It doesn't matter whether or not the physician is the leasing person or group or is leasing from a hospital system. The Stark Law uh, rental of office space exception is applicable. And so I'm just going to give you the basic terms under that exception, and then I'll go through some of the operational challenges that we all face with respect to operationalizing real estate under the Stark Law. Like most Stark Law exceptions, 
the lease arrangement must be set out in writing and signed by the parties, and it must specify the premises that is being covered by the leasing arrangement. And again, this does not have to be a contract, but it has to be something in writing that is signed by the parties. And the term of the arrangement has to be for at least one year, and if it's terminated uh, in less than one year, then the parties cannot enter into a new leasing arrangement for the same space during that first year of the original term. And I always get asked, well, well, why? And I'm not quite sure why, as long as it's fair market value, et cetera, but there's still this one-year uh, requirement that exists in the exception. And it probably helps a lot of you to, to know and understand when I say i can't explain the rational basis for the one-year requirement. It also tells you how complex these rules and regulations are under the Stark Law. And I guess, you know, primarily, they do, they do not want to see that the real estate arrangement continues to escalate in price or decreases in price, depending upon which direction the referral source is, whether or not they're the lessor or the lessee. Then the space that is being rented or leased must be reasonable and necessary for a legitimate business purpose. That goes into the size of the space. So you don't want to have a hospital, by way of example, renting 10,000 square feet when the hosp- from a physician when the hospital only needs 5,000 square feet from that physician. And the lessee has to be the exclusive user of that space. Now, in the recent changes, uh, the final rules that were effective in January 1 of 2021, they did modify the exclusivity requirement under the rental of office space saying that you can share like a common area like a waiting room or reception area as long as there's a prorated basis for sharing the expense of that um, that common area. So common area can be shared, but there has to be some exclusive aspects to the space that is being rented uh, by the lessee. The rental charge must be set in advance and must be consistent with fair market value. And as I've indicated previously, fair market value is the value at the time that the arrangement is entered into. And here, in order to continue to comply with the fair market value standards, the term of the arrangement must be of a a period that is reasonable, and I would say reasonable is usually five years or less, or you have an annual escalation clause that is placed into the rental arrangement. Like most Stark Law exceptions, that the rental rate cannot take into account the volume or value of referrals between the business. So you can't charge a physician less than fair market value because the physician is a referral source, etc. And you cannot use a formula that's either based on a percentage of revenue. So if you're renting to a physician, you can't charge the physician a certain uh, amount based upon the revenue the physician is generating from that space. And also you can't rent it out on a per-click or per-use basis if the landlord uh, is the recipient of referrals from the lessee or the user of that space. And also, you can have a holdover provision as long, and right now the holdover is indefinite, as long as the holdover is on the same terms and conditions as the lease arrangement that is expiring, and for so long as all of the other terms and conditions of the Stark Law exceptions 
apply. So the primary thing in the holdover period, you want to make sure that the, the arrangement continues to be representative of fair market value uh, during the holdover term. But again, the term can be longer than just you know six months or a year, as long as you're consistent with the other terms and conditions of the real estate or rental of office space except, exception under the Stark Law. And I'm frequently asked by clients how often they should do a market survey to evaluate the fair market value basis of their rental arrangements uh, for their medical office buildings. And typically, I would say every three years, unless something you know, major happens within that service area. Like, for example, uh, if there are, is a major influx or need for office space, and so obviously the office space value uh, starts to increase, or we have another recession uh, that would cause the value to decrease. Those may be reasons to evaluate the fair market value basis uh, periodically uh, through the uh, uh, term, if it's you know, for the term that's less than three years. The other thing you want to focus in on is the medical use. Uh, medical office space is typically more expensive to develop than common office space. Uh, typically, the exam rooms are smaller than office space. A lot of offices, uh, just general offices, have a lot of open space uh, for administrative assistants and other types of individuals. Uh, but in healthcare, the, the, the space is smaller. Obviously, in the patient exam rooms, you have a lot of plumbing that's available for, so the physician can wash his or her hands, uh, which is different than most just general office space. Now, later in the episode, I'm going to go through some real estate complexity. So these are issues that could cause an arrangement not to meet the Stark Law Office of Rental Space Exception. But before I do that, let me just give you one example. And this is a live example that actually happened with one of my clients. We had a CEO that of a hospital that had a, a couple of medical office buildings, and so what he wanted to do is he wanted to designate suites based upon the number of physicians who would occupy a suite. So let's say, for example, you've got you know, suite 200. And suite 200, the CEO has designated as a four-physician suite based upon space. So what the CEO said is that he wanted to prorate the lease amount based upon the number of physicians who were occupying the space. So in suite 200, if it's a four physician space, then if only two physicians were with the group when they first started renting the space or later on for some reason or circumstances, a physician dies, relocates, uh, retires, etc., it went from a four physician in that suite down to two then arguably that physician group would be paying 50% of fair market value. But the CEO said, well, you know, the space is set up for four. There are not four. So in order to convince the physicians to occupy the space, he wanted to prorate it. But my you know, retort back to him was that, you know, 50% of fair market value, if I'm only having two physicians occupying a four-physician space, that would mean the physician group 
is paying 50% of fair market value, and 50% of fair market value is not fair market value. So obviously, uh, those lease arrangements were modified in order to correct that deficiency. I understand it from a business perspective, but from a Stark Law compliance perspective, that would be problematic for meeting the fair market value requirement. So now I'm going to turn to my list of real estate complexities, and I have this in a PDF format that I could email to you. So just go ahead and email me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com. That's bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com, all one word, or bob.wade at btlaw.com. And I'll be happy to share this with you. So the first uh, complexity is the square foot measurement. You want to make sure that you reasonably measure the space to make sure that you are allocating all of the space correctly. So for example, if you have a 2,000 square foot uh, suite, but for some reason somebody believes that space is only 1,500 square feet, then in effect the landlord, and here I'm going to use the hospital as a landlord, the hospital would be providing 500 square feet to that physician group free of charge assuming that you were charging fair market value for the 1500 that was listed in the lease agreement. And there's been you know, some cases and examples where just the measurement of the space was incorrect. And because historically they were using incorrect measurement for the suite that caused the overall arrangement to be less than fair market value. So the, the measurement of the square footage of the space is critical. Next are real estate appraisals. As I've mentioned previously, it's my position that if you are a hospital, you should look at the market once every three years to determine what is the fair market value rental rate of your medical office space. And make sure from a legal as well as a compliance perspective, you read these opinions because a lot of times these real estate appraisers, appraisers, and again, try to have them completed by an appraiser, not just a real estate broker or an agent. And uh, for one example, another example I'll give to you, these are my war stories, is I received from a client a bunch of letters that came from a real estate agency that was trying to evaluate the fair market value of the space uh, owned by the hospital. And this compliance officer felt that uh, that she had all of the documentation that she needed in order to support the fair market value of the lease rate because it was on a letterhead from a real estate firm. Well, when you read the real estate letters, basically what this real estate firm did, it had identified all of the office space in the community that was currently being offered for lease. So this was empty office space. So a couple of deficiencies there is first off, uh, it was just identifying the space that was empty. Uh, which meant that you didn't match up a tenant with the space. And they left out a huge area of the market, and that huge area of the market was the occupied space because the occupied space is really the foundation of the market. And then the these letters did not give a fair market value range for the specific office space. So if I had an office space at 105 Main Street and I wanted to identify the fair market value of the office space at 105 Main Street, then the appraiser 
should make the the appraisal specific to 105 Main Street. Obviously, you would use as comparables all of the other real estate in the market, and preferably these are going to be uh, medical office space in the market, but you use the comparables in order to evaluate the subject space to determine what the fair market value is for that subject space. Next, you have to evaluate all of your comparables based upon what type of leasing arrangement. And there's basically three different types of leasing arrangements, and then there's variations of all of them. So again, in real estate, you want to evaluate apples to apples. There are gross lease arrangements, and that means if you're going to be paying $25 per square foot, you're only going to be paying $25 per square foot, regardless of what the common area maintenance is. So the landlord takes the risk with respect to the common area maintenance. Then there's a theory called triple net, that you have a base rental amount, let's say it's $20 per square foot, but in addition to the base, then the tenant will be paying their fair share of the common area maintenance. So you take a look at the insurance, the cleaning, if cleaning is, is part of it, landscaping, uh, snow removal, etc. Uh, insurance, taxes, and things like that. All that goes into the common area maintenance, and then those charges are divided amongst all of the tenants based upon the space that the tenants are occupying. So that's called triple net. So in that case, you take the it'd be the base rate of twenty dollars, and then let's say the common area maintenance is five dollars per square foot. So if you're going to equalize that triple net and compare it to a gross rental rate, you'd have to add the $5 to the 20 base and come up with $25 per square foot to make it consistent with the $25 per square foot gross. Then there's also a concept called modified triple net. And this is when you would charge, let's say it's the $25 per square foot, but annually you will evaluate the common area maintenance and any type of increase that occurs, let's say there's a, a 3% increase that occurs in the common area maintenance, that increase in common area maintenance is then allocated back to the tenants based upon the space that they were occupying. So that's called a modified triple net. And there are variations to all of that where sometimes the tenant will be assuming the responsibility for cleaning, uh, you know, taxes, if there's tax abatement, there's a lot of times those can be passed through. So there's variations, but there's basically three, the gross, triple net, and modified triple net. And I had one circumstances where a client wanted to compare their gross rental rate with the base triple net. And once I received that uh, information, I had to inform the chief executive officer that the triple net is a lower amount because in addition to the triple net base, that the tenants would have to pay the common area maintenance on top of that. So in that case, if that client would have used a triple net base rate to justify a gross rate that could cause the uh, the arrangement not to meet fair market value and therefore not meet the Stark Law exception. Next, some leases just require that increases in operating expenses be passed along. Just make sure if that is stated in the lease agreement that you do pass along those operating expense increases because if you fail to do so, that also can create a stark law problem because then the arrangement is not meeting fair market value and it's not set in advance. Well, it would be set in advance in the contract, but if the contract is not applied, then consistent with the contract, which could pose a problem. 
The next area of concern or complexity is tenant improvements. That in addition to just evaluating what the market is doing from a rental rate perspective, you also need to evaluate what other landlords are doing from a tenant improvement expense. So this is you know moving around walls, uh, applying modern fixtures, uh, new carpeting, tile, etc. All of that, those tenant improvements have to be considered. And let's say that on a uh, per square foot basis that the market is generally allocating $10 in tenant improvements, but a tenant wants to go in and instead of $10 per square foot in tenant improvements, they want $25 per square foot. Well, that additional $15 in tenant improvements either has to be paid for by the tenant or it has to be calculated as part of the lease arrangement so that the tenant is paying for those enhanced tenant improvements during the term of the lease. So again, a tenant improvement analysis is something that is usually a separate and apart analysis from just analyzing the gross rent, but still it has to be considered as part of the overall compensation arrangement to be consistent with other tenant improvements in the market. The next complexity is holdover rent. As I've previously indicated, if you're going to have a holdover, then you want to make sure that it's consistent with fair market value during the holdover term. Again, that term it could be an unspecified amount of time, but usually uh, it will be compliant only if there's an annual cost of living increase that would be continued to, to apply. And that cost of living increase would have to be embedded into the expired lease agreement for it to apply during the holdover period. I've already talked a little bit about exclusive use, but there has to be an exclusive use function. And I'll have another episode that will go through timeshare arrangements, but there has to be an exclusive use, but you could share some common area uh, as that is used by the tenants uh, as long as a portion of the space is used exclusively by the tenant. And again, none of this that I'm talking about today deals with timeshare arrangement, and I'll deal with timeshare arrangements uh, in a later episode. Now it's time for the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for our episode today. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is obtain a market survey at least once every three years or when a transaction occurs if you're acquiring the real estate and make sure that you're evaluating that uh, office space versus medical office space because as I indicated, medical office space is usually more expensive in order to develop versus general office space. Captain Integrity punch point number two is compare apples to apples. Compare gross leases to gross leases, triple net leases to triple net leases, and modified triple net to modified triple net. And you can equalize those by estimating, like in a triple net basis, you, know, you can estimate what the common area maintenance would be and apply that to the base rate in order to extrapolate that up to a gross amount. But again, you want to compare gross to gross, triple net to triple net, and modified triple to modified triple. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three is I've indicated I have a list of these real estate complexities that I can email to you. Simply email me and I would be happy to provide those to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, 
the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.